Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we delve into the stories behind the headlines from the world's most interesting region. I'm Andrew People. And I'm Vincent Nee. This week, we're turning our attention to Indonesia, the sprawling Southeast Asian nation that's home to more than a quarter of a billion people. Now, we wanted to focus on one particular Indonesian, Joko Widodo, commonly known as Jokowi, the man whose rise to the top captured the imagination of the world and has led the country as president since 2014. Yes, his rise to power in Indonesia from relatively humble origins as a furniture maker is an extraordinary story in itself. But after six years in power and two big election wins, what has Jokowi actually achieved for Indonesia? Has he brought about the change his ascent to the presidency seemed to promise? And what has his impact on the broader Asian region been? To answer these questions and more, we have with us Ben Bland of Lowell Institute, which is an Australian think tank. Ben has covered Jokowi's rise as a journalist with the Financial Times and has recently published the first English language biography of the president entitled Man of Contradictions. Later in the podcast, we'll be also joined by political scientist, Professor Dr. Dewi Fortuna Anwar. She is a research professor at the Indonesian Institute of Sciences and has served as an official under three Indonesian presidents. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. Great to be with you both. So there's obviously a lot to unpack about Jokowi, but I guess we should start with the current situation and the way Jokowi and his government have coped with the COVID-19 crisis. Now, he is among some major leaders who have been heavily criticized for the way they have handled this crisis. What has been the particular issue, Ben, in Indonesia, and how much is his government really to blame? We have to understand here that Indonesia did start from a very difficult position. It's a country which has been growing in wealth, but still has one of the highest degrees of social inequality in the world. It has a health system which was already way overstretched and facing big, big budget problems. So Indonesia came to this crisis in a difficult position. But right from the start, I think Jokowi, the president, has failed to find a clear strategy to tackle the crisis. And his government has really suffered from a number of issues, a lack of clear communication to the public about the nature of the threat and what to do about it. And this flip-flopping, really, over whether he wants to put the economy first or people's health first. This is a dilemma that many, many leaders have faced. And it's particularly acute in Indonesia, where the vast majority of the workforce are employed informally. They're not in offices with salaried jobs. They can't work from home on Zoom like the rest of us. And Mm. so I think feeling the need to keep the economy moving He's really prevaricated over what to do. At the beginning, he downplayed the crisis, saying there was nothing to worry about, and he didn't want to panic the Indonesian people. And then he's really toed and froed, sometimes saying we have to put health first, sometimes saying, no, lockdowns are too damaging, we have to push on. And in the meantime, Indonesia has suffered what some people have called an endless first wave of increasing numbers of cases and deaths, despite having one of the lowest testing ratios in the world. Right. Lack of strategy is obviously a problem, and it's quite obvious. And that probably also goes down to his leadership style, right? I mean, you wrote extensively in your book about his leadership style, and he's often making plans on the hoof without having a thought-through plan. How has that manifested itself during this crisis? Well, Jokowi is a former furniture maker, a former city mayor. That was really his formative experience. And so I think he brings that practical 
and instinctive approach to the presidency, which I think has worked well for him electorally. It's worked well for him in normal times, but in crises, I think it makes it very, very difficult. So he's a guy who governs more through his own experience and his feeling than necessarily listening to experts around him. So we've seen as the crisis has worsened, he's looked to the military and the police to tackle the COVID-19 crisis really as almost a social order question rather than putting epidemiologists and scientists front and center. And I think that speaks to the fact that he's more comfortable with those guys who he thinks can get things done. It's sort of the practical side of his brain rather than sort of going through these very detailed explanations about managing the disease, managing the economy and finding these very delicate balances. And we've also seen you know, his statements on what to do change radically, really depending on who's been presenting to him, what's the latest news. To be fair, I think a lot of leaders around the world have struggled with finding the right balance, but it has been particularly bad in Indonesia. And I think the Indonesian science community, epidemiologists, economists have been particularly scathing, but remarkably, the Indonesian public has been very forgiving. His ratings, his approval ratings seem remarkably high and there haven't really been mass protests against his handling and I think that's because instinctively when he talks about needing to let people work so that they can eat and they can feed their family I think that resonates with many Indonesians. Ben can we take a step back then and talk about that background as a furniture maker he was obviously a pretty successful businessman but how did he then translate that into this incredibly rapid ascent through local and then onto national politics? Well, in the book, I characterize it as rising to the top accidentally on purpose. So Mm. I think there's a sense of he has this retail political talent, this ability to connect with ordinary Indonesians, which is quite remarkable and very rare. There are so many people I met in Indonesia and frankly, in other countries around the world who want to be president, they want to be a minister, they want to be somebody in politics, but they just don't have that touch for connecting with people. And he had it. And I think he was also lucky in terms terms of timing, because when he came on the scene, he ran for his first mayoral race in his home city of Solo in 2005. It was really in the early days of Indonesia's second experiment with democracy, seven years after the fall of Suharto, the long ruling autocrat. And at that time, I think Indonesians had already started to become a bit frustrated with the early years of democracy because they'd had elections, but they really had this quite unimpressive cast of leaders who really hadn't moved far on from the old days. There was a lot of corruption, a lot of inefficiency. And Jokowi basically said, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to get the small things right, spruce up markets, clean up slums, make it easier for businesses to get permits. And I'm going to be clean, not like all those other corrupt people who are running for office. So this very simple promise, if you like, and his ability to connect with people really catapulted him to the top in just nine years because there was such a poor cast of other leaders. And you've seen him in action, right? You've been on these sort of local visits where he goes to visit ordinary people. Do you sort of feel the magic when you're with him there? And why is this so sort of successful in the context of Indonesian politics? Definitely. That's why I wrote the book. When you go there and you see him in action, you see people flock to him, you realize there's something real about his ability to connect 
And this simple promise of clean government, improved public services, it speaks to the desire of many Indonesians in, as I said, this very unequal but growing country to have leaders that listen to them more, to break up the power of the oligarchy, the old elites who many people felt were really keeping them down. So the fact that he looks and sounds like people and he promised to uplift them, I think, added to his touch for dealing with people and really led to this amazing kind of feeling when you went out with him on the campaign trail where wherever he went, whether it was a market, a mosque, a shopping mall, a five-star hotel, people were just crowd around him, desperate to get a selfie, even though he wasn't really saying much. He's a man of, of action, not really a man of speechifying. He doesn't promise too much when he's out on the stump, but people just wanted to see him and be with him. And Jokowi himself talks about having a wajah kampung, the face of someone from the village in Indonesia. And I think that speaks a lot to his power, that it's a story of someone who's able to rise up from humble beginnings to the power by dint of his hard work, and honest efforts to make a better life. And there's something in that that understandably really appeals to Indonesian people. But what motivated him to go into politics? Does he have some kind of overarching philosophy or sense of the direction that he wants Indonesia to go in? This, for me, is one of Jokowi's many contradictions, uh, as the the book's title suggests, Mm. that he's not someone who's ever expressed a strong desire to rise to the top of politics. He's not a Boris Johnson-type figure who sat on his father or grandfather's knee, age five, and said he wants to be world king. As far as we know, he's not really a reader. As a student, he wasn't interested in politics. So while other Indonesian students were risking it all to oppose the Suharto regime, Jokowi was just getting on with life studying forestry and then setting up his small and later middle-sized furniture factory. So it's quite curious how this guy who doesn't ostensibly demonstrate a lot of ambition was able to beat many powerful billionaires, dynasty members from Indonesia's leading political families, military figures and the like to the top job. So he obviously does have this inner drive and self-confidence, but it's quite hard to see that in his life story. So it's quite fascinating. And I think it just speaks to contingency and luck in history that it was this series of election victories. And I think particularly when he was re-elected as the mayor of Solo in 2010 with 90% of the vote, I think that really convinced him that he had something special. And it also meant that Indonesia's political party operatives, other business people saw something in him. They saw a guy who was going to be successful. So they wanted to kind of tack themselves onto Jokowi as well. So it was that election victory that for him and for those who later backed him, I think really sort of transformed him from being a local figure to someone with a potential for national leadership in the world's third biggest democracy. Interesting, you said his background captured the imagination among voters in Indonesia, but also his background and his quick rise to power also captured the imagination of the outside world, right? You know, journalists, politicians, and diplomats all hailed him as a potential savior of this very young democracy. So what sort of hopes did Jokowi carry with him into his presidency? And why was he, at least in the early years of his reign, seemingly so convincing to the outside world? Jokowi's great strengths, as one of his advisors put it to me, is that this is, I think, a comparison to Obama, who said once that he's like a blank canvas who allows people to paint their hopes and dreams onto him. And that was very much the case with Jokowi. As I said earlier, he, he doesn't say much. He doesn't give 
big speeches, but this sense that he was someone new, he was a, a clean broom who would sweep away the old way of doing things, allowed people to impress their own hopes onto him. So I think for many foreign investors and foreign governments, they saw Jokowi as someone who was going to open up the Indonesian economy to foreign investment, to take away some of the kind of protectionist attitudes and laws that I think have held back the Indonesian economy to civil society activists in Indonesia. They thought he was a guy who was going to take away power from the oligarchy, help balance the economy to make sure there are more benefits for poor Indonesians by improving access to health and education and a fairer share of the economic spoils in Indonesia. So it really depends who you ask, but I think many people thought he was this change maker. And to be fair, in his 2014 presidential manifesto, he did promise a lot. He promised to review past human rights abuses in Indonesia. He promised to open up the economy, make society fairer, to pursue legal reform, to ensure more legal certainty, which is, I think is something that many Indonesians want to see to reduce corruption and also many outsiders, because that's one of the other main hurdles to foreign investment. So there were so many hopes for him him, partly because he allowed people to see what they want. And whenever you have such high hopes, it's almost inevitable that the next stage will be disappointment. Right. One of the things that raised eyebrows in his early years as president was that both his son and his son-in-law were going into the politics and causing some speculation that he may be looking to build another political dynasty. Where do you see the turning point as having come then? It's really hard to pin it down. And Jokowi is a guy who loves to surprise. He can be very unpredictable. I think it's probably a deliberate but instinctive political tactic to keep people on guard, to keep him as a powerful figure as against these established political parties and organizations who otherwise, you know, tend to have a lot of control over Indonesian politics. So it was really ironic when in the last year he did smooth the path for his son and son-in-law into politics because he'd been seen, especially by people in the civil society community in Indonesia, as someone who would sweep away the old way of doing mm. things. He was the first president from outside the elite. And yet over time, as he's been in the presidential palace, he's brought more and more elite political parties and figures into his cabinet, into his broad governing coalition. And I think putting his son and son-in-law, or at least uh, helping them get into politics, really s- seemed to symbolize for some of those strongest backers in the early days you know, that the promise of Jacoby was now broken because if anything, Jokowi was formed by contested local politics. And yet now it seems his son and son-in-law are going to have, you know, de facto coronations. Of course, they still have to face elections later this year. So the Indonesian voters will get a chance. But certainly it looks like Jokowi is going the way of, frankly, almost all other Indonesian leaders because the descendants of five of Indonesia's six other presidents are currently active in politics today. So you might say it would be more surprising if Jokowi didn't look to create his own dynasty than if he did. You have a striking quote as well in the, well, you have many striking quotes in the book, but you talk about how pretty early on into his presidency, Jokowi was being described as a weak president caught between reform and oligarchic politics. And we've talked about that oligarchic politics a little already. Could you explain a bit more what you mean by that, what that actually means in Indonesia and who some of the big players are that Jokowi is trying to wrestle with, contend with, but also cooperate with? 
It's a really good question. And I think it goes back to what happened after the fall of Suharto in 1998. So Indonesia went through what's known as reformasi or the reform movement. So it was reform. It wasn't a revolution. So when Suharto fell... Just to take a step back, Ben, Suharto ruled Indonesia for about 32 years from the 1960s onwards. Exactly. Suharto was a long ruling autocrat, a former general who seized power and drove this sort of developmental state where the military had a lot of power in politics and society. But on the other hand, there was a pool of technocrats that Suharto looked to to drive economic reforms that were quite successful in making Indonesia one of the, the tiger economies of its day in the 80s and 90s. But eventually, I think people grew tired of the nepotism and corruption around him. And he was out did effectively in 1998 during the Asian financial crisis when Indonesia was one of the economies that was hardest hit. And I think we have to understand that when he was ousted from power, there wasn't a revolution, but there was a shift to a democratic system. At the same time, there was no justice really for the wrongdoing of the Suharto era. Many of the players from that time, including his sons, many of the military figures and others were allowed to keep playing in Indonesia's political playing field. So many of the individuals, the institutions, and also the authoritarian thinking of that time survived. So the rules of the game changed and many of the players stayed the same. That's also true of the tycoons, the oligarchs, who really had a lot of power economically under Suharto to this day in Indonesia. You know, if you look at the top 10 or 20 richest families, they run these powerful conglomerates across all sectors of society and very, very influential in politics as well as in business. So that's kind of the field of actors that Jokowi has to negotiate with on his route to power and to get anything done in office. And I think like other leaders before him, he's continued this sort of series of compromises, if you like, with a number of compromised figures. So to keep political stability, he's traded away policy stability, I think, because once you have these former generals uh, accused of human rights abuses like Prabowo and Waranto in the tent, as well as many others, it's obviously hard to have the sort of purist reforming government that some of Jokowi's strongest Indonesian backers wanted to see. But I personally would question the extent to which Jokowi was ever committed to the sort of reform that the civil society folks and many outside Indonesia thinks he wants. I think for Jokowi, it was always an incremental business, even in the town hall at Solo and in the governor's mansion in Jakarta. Jokowi always worked slowly with civil servants, with local business elites, as well as with civil society organizations. So he's always a guy who's looked for balance rather than sort of overturning the tables and really shaking things up. He wants to see incremental change that keeps his political position secure, but hopefully pushes the economy and society in the right direction. So Ben, after all this, I want to look at the legacy of Jokowi. He's obviously got a few years left to run in his presidency. You write in the book, which I think is very interesting, about some of the harm you say that has been caused to Indonesia's democratic institutions during his period in office. For example, the sort of downgrading of the agency that deals with corruption in Indonesia. And you write also that Jokowi in many ways seems to see democracy as a means to an end rather than an end to itself. It's a means for him to gain the legitimacy for his economic policies, but not something that he seeks to preserve at all costs. What do you think the sort of long run legacy of Jokowi's period in office is going to be there for? 
Well, I was always skeptical about how much Jokowi was the reformer that a lot of people thought he was. So when he was Jakarta governor, I sat down with him and, and tried to press him on what he thought democracy meant, what it was really about. And he just told me it's about improving the lives of the people. It's a very simple and straightforward answer that I think really captures you know, his view of, of politics. But I think, unfortunately, that take has been problematic because of the pushback against Indonesia's democratic institutions from some in the military from many of the people in the oligarchy and the political parties. So the quality of Indonesian democracy has undoubtedly suffered, particularly in his second term, which is concerning. But as for his legacy, I think there's four years to go. I wanted to write a sort of short political biography now so that we'd have a useful guide for his next four years. But we have to be fair. We, we don't know what's going to happen in the, in the next four years. Politics, especially in Indonesia, but anywhere, can be really, really unpredictable. And I think a lot will depend on who follows in Jokowi's wake. So the great hope for many people in Indonesia and outside is that Jokowi might represent a new model of doing politics where leaders rise to the top through local government, not because of who they are or who they know or how much money they have or who they've paid off, but because they're honest, they're hardworking, they're clean, and they work to improve people's lives. And there are a number of other candidates for the next presidential race in 2024 who kind of mirror Jokowi's rise. They've come up through local politics. They work hard. They're known as being relatively clean. So if someone like that took over, I guess you might hope that they would take on Jokowi's best self, as it were, and really push things in the right direction. But there are a number of other figures really from Indonesia's Suharto era, like Prabowo Subyan the former Special Forces General, married previously to Sahado's daughter, currently Defence Minister in Jokowi's government, and almost certainly eyeing the presidency as well. And if someone like that took over, or someone from the military, someone who's really not that keen on improving the quality of Indonesian democracy, I think you'd have to be very concerned, given the situation present when Indonesia's democratic norms and institutions have been weakened. If you had someone who's more authoritarian in their thinking or background, taking over. That would be quite worrying. But the good thing in Indonesia is the presidential elections are remarkably free and fair and, and hotly contested. So to a large extent, it comes down to the Indonesian people and what they want to see in their leader. And I think that's one of the great things about Indonesia today, that the electoral system is so strong and so robust. And that's something which many other Asian countries who've tried to come out of military-dominated rule have really struggled to achieve. Well, Ben, that's a great place to finish off. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Ben's book is called Man of Contradictions. It's Joko Widowie and the Struggle to Remake Indonesia. It's published by Penguin and it's available from all good bookshops and online retailers, as you would expect. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. So joining us now is Professor Dewi Fatuna Enwa. As I said earlier in the episode, she is a research professor at the Indonesian Institute of Sciences. She also has served as a senior official under three Indonesian presidents. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dewi. Thank you. Now, one of the things we spoke about with Ben earlier was Jokowi's ability to create a kind of, you know, really hopeful persona for both his domestic and international audiences. But what are the reasons of the sudden turn of events in our understanding of this man? Well, I think I agree with what Ben has said in the book, 
Jokowi's rise captured all the imaginations, not just of Indonesians, but outsiders as well, because, of course, he was an outsider, somebody who is just a mayor of a small town, not someone from military background or the bureaucracy or political dynasty. So this is an ordinary man who has managed, you know, to come to the presidency of Indonesia. So people vested a lot of hopes and expectations, which, as, you know, Ben explained, is probably unrealistic. So it's not so much that Jokowi has disappointed, it's just that people probably were expecting too much from him. And the fact is Indonesia is a very big country with a lot of structural problems, history looms very large and external environment is not very benign. There are just so many things going on at the same time. And given all the challenges, both internal and external, and the fact that Jokowi comes from that very modest background, one should probably not be too disappointed, you know, if one looks at what he has achieved, I think Indonesia is not doing too badly. It's mm. not doing wonderfully either, particularly you know, in that dealing with COVID now. Indonesia is not as bad as others, but it's not as good as others either. So the expectations have been dashed because I think they're too much. You know, the, the expectation is too high. Absolutely. Dewi, an interesting aspect of Ben's book is that he talks about Jokowi becoming somewhat more authoritarian as his period in office has gone on. He's brought in various senior military figures into the government and so on. And as we talked about briefly there, institutions like the agency that looks into corruption in Indonesia appears to have been downplayed. Do you think that's fair comment that he has become more authoritarian or is that just something more to do with the nature of Indonesian politics and the structure of the presidency? Yes and no. I mean, the fact of the matter is that civil societies, democracy activists were very indulgent towards Jokowi when he first came to power. So the slippery slope towards more authoritarianism, it's not just happening now in the second term. I would argue that it already started in the first term. Revision on the law on the KPK, the anti-corruption agency, started from the early years of Jokowi's presidency. In fact, it only started, you know, attempts to reform the KPK law had only started during the SBY presidency. But every time there were attempts by the government or the parliament to review, there were protests from civil society. And every time there were protests, the government would scale back and would stop. But then during the Jokowi presidency, Jokowi allowed the discussions of the revisions to go forward. And as you know, under the Indonesian constitution, the president does not have the veto right. And it's only towards the end that people started protesting, but it's too late already. So I would argue that it's not simply Jokowi was turning rogue or whatever, but Indonesian civil society who are very supportive of Jokowi and who are very afraid of the rise of this radical Islam and also of Prabowo, were reluctant to criticize Jokowi. He appointed a lot of military leaders, uh, retired military leaders, in his first cabinet, more military former generals in his presidency. But at the time, it was seen to counterbalance, you know, Prabowo, who, of course, was also supported by a lot of retired generals. So I would argue that if anyone is to be criticized, the whole Indonesian civil society needs to take the blame as well for being silent, for not, not be willing to stand up from early on because of the fear of empowering the opposition. Can we talk a little bit more about Prabowo Subianto? I mean, he is this figure who had, you know, a lot of military power during the time of the Suharto regime. And he also, of course, stood against Jokowi for the presidency in 2014, and I think in 2019 as well. And yet Jokowi has now brought him into the government. How much of a shock was that to observers of Indonesian politics? And what 
really was Jokowi trying to do with that move? Well, I think it was a real shock to us. I was very, very shocked at the time. First, that Jokowi invited Prabowo, and secondly, that Prabowo is actually willing to join the cabinet and be you know, a, a helper, someone who has to pay respect to Jokowi Dodo. And during most of the election campaigns, of course, Prabowo has been much less than respectful to Jokowi Dodo. So we're all very, very shocked. In terms of political stability, this is a good move because, as mm. you know, after the election, the Indonesian society has been polarized. And in fact, that was the real threat to Indonesian democratic consolidations when society is very polarized. Those who should be fighting together against the power of the state were very divided. So when Prabowo is brought into the government, civil society is less divided in a way because now the power of the state is being incorporated to include most of the political group. So it's much easier for a civil society to be more critical of the state. For Jokowi Dodo, clearly, you know, is to ensure support in parliament, also to, you might say, domesticate all of those political opponents. It's good for political stability. It's not necessarily good for Indonesian check and balance or Indonesia's democratic consolidation. But in terms of getting on with the work, you know, as you see, look what happened in the United States when after the presidential election, the American society remains very, very divided. You know, that's mm. very difficult. At least, you know, Indonesia, which is always in danger of breaking up given its diversity, having this, you might call, a national government, you know, a more unified government, it's good in terms of political unity, not good for democracy. Yeah, but for Prabowo himself, you know, why would someone who's so proud be willing to, you might say, serve in a subservient position? Because after all, a minister can be fired and hired by the president anytime. For him, mm. probably he doesn't want to be in the wilderness after losing so many elections, starting with as a vice president and presidential election. He feels that, you know, he needs the stage where he will be seen as someone with experience in serving the government. And maybe given that there'll be a clean slate at the next presidential election, he needs probably the political capital as well from the Jokowi groups as well. After all, you know, during the gubernatorial election, Jokowi was supported by Prabowo. You know, that's Indonesian politics for you. I mean, it does seem that Jokowi has been pretty successful at this coalition building. I mean, I think he has the support now of something like three quarters of the parliament, right, in terms of the people who are on board and inside his government. But of course, as you say, I suppose the potential weakness there is that you end up parceling out jobs to the various different parties. And it's quite difficult then to form kind of cohesive policies if you're endlessly sort of giving out jobs to people from different political backgrounds. Is that a weakness of Jokowi or a weakness of Indonesian democracy and the system itself, do you think? Or is this actually something desirable that if you have such a big country and such a diverse country, that's almost the way that you need to rule ultimately? Well, it's a structural problem that we have with our political reform. When we have presidential system, but at the same time, we have a very multi-party system because our elections for parliament is not based on first past the post. And that was, at the, from the beginning, there was a very strong opposition to the first past the post election that you would have, say, in the UK, because at the time, newer parties felt that, you know, Gorkar had an unfair advantage. If it was first past the post, then probably Gorkar would simply just win the election all over again and would again dominate Indonesian politics through open elections, but not necessarily fair. So in the beginning, it was all the new parties opposed the system. So there are a number, 48 parties took part in the elections for 
1999, and there have been struggles to reduce the number of political parties by increasing the electoral threshold and presidential thresholds. But there is always this debate about democracy, about allowing new parties to come up. And because of this, you know, we have multi-party systems. So Indonesia is supposed to be a strong presidential system, like in the United States. At the same time, we have this multi-party systems where in parliament, remember during SBY's first presidency, he also had very few seats supporting him in parliament. He also ended up with a huge 10 coalition. And Jokowi also, in his first presidency, also had minority supports in parliament. In the end, he also managed to co-opt a number of those political parties. So, as I said, this is a structural problems in Indonesian democracy because there was this resistance to a fast, first-past-post system. Also because of this diversity and the reluctance to prevent new parties or smaller parties to emerge, or also reluctance to allow you know, the majority population to dominate. And this multi-party system allows minorities to join political parties as well. When Jokowi first became the president, there was high hope that Indonesia was going to take a larger role, at least in ASEAN and in the region. And then Ben, from years of reporting, he concluded that you know, Jokowi's philosophy towards foreign policy is to make as many as friends as possible, but friends with benefits. Why do you think Jokowi hasn't really sort of stepped up to play a larger role in the region, at least? I think Jokowi made a point during his presidential campaign, differentiating himself from SBY. SBY was very much a foreign policy president. He enjoyed and he was very effective and received recognition you know, for his global leadership as well as for his regional leadership. And to support that policy of taking leadership in ASEAN as well as you know, at the multilateral level, President SBY appointed also very highly visible foreign ministers like Hassan Wirayuda and Mati Natalangawa who came up with ideas and so on, you know. But Jokowi deliberately took the opposite, criticizing that, you know, what all of this high-profile foreign policy, you know, what does it achieve in terms of what is the beef, put it that way. And he made a point of saying that, you know, his foreign policy is going to be more down-to-earth, more people-oriented. And to that end, he also appointed a foreign minister, Ibu Ratno, who's a very able career diplomat, but get things done, but it's not big on ideas. So I don't think that we have any right to be disappointed that Indonesia has not taken the leadership role too much in ASEAN because Jokowi never pretended that he wanted to do that. So in this way, mm. it was more like the early days of the Suharto government adopting a low-profile role in ASEAN. But clearly, because Indonesia is the first amongst equal within ASEAN and seen to be the natural leader, clearly, you know, after the high-profile role that Indonesia has played under the SBY administration, there is a lot of disappointment, particularly when you have this increasing problem of great power rivalry and, and you know, the increasingly yeah. China in the South China Sea. And ASEAN is, after all, you know, despite its weakness, it is the primary regional convener. I mean, you might be critical of ASEAN, but ASEAN is the only organization, regional forum, that is able to convene meetings where all of the big players are there. So without Indonesia playing a role in ASEAN, ASEAN is not going to be effective. So, you know, you have this Jokowi who is not comfortable in playing as a foreign policy president, but there are expectations because being Indonesia, you know, has to step up to the plate. Towards the end of his first presidency, Indonesia began to play an active role again in ASEAN. If you remember in, in the early years, there was talk about a post-ASEAN foreign policy. Indonesia took the initiative to propose this ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific that actually serves at least three objectives. Firstly, this could be the manifestations of his policy of making Indonesia into a global maritime park room. Secondly, you know, to show that ASEAN remains the cornerstone of Indonesian foreign policy. And thirdly, this is to preempt 
the emergence of other regional architecture initiatives by other powers to say that, you know, we do not want a new original architecture that is outside of ASEAN. So the ASEAN centrality has been emphasized again. So he has begun to play a role. But maybe, as I say, you know, if you look at President Clinton, when he first came to the presidency as a governor from Arkansas, he was not a foreign policy president either, but he became quite well known for his foreign policy initiatives in his second presidency. So let's hope that, you know, in the second term, Jokowi... Four years left. <laughs> yeah, four years left, yeah. That, because the region needs ASEAN and ASEAN yeah. needs Indonesia. But outside of ASEAN, you know, you talked about a great power rivalry between the US and China, and America was very keen to promote the Indo-Pacific strategy. Where does Indonesia fit in? Indonesia actually has also proposed an Indo-Pacific strategy much earlier. Mm-hmm. Martina Talagawa already came up with the idea of an Indo-Pacific Treaty of Friendship in 2013. Because right. Indonesia and Australia, you know, they're the only two countries which are truly Indo-Pacific in nature, because it has shores on both the Pacific Oceans and in the Indian Oceans. So Indonesia needs to leverage its geographic positions, you know, to this geostrategic reality. And Indo-Pacific is now the reality, not just Asia-Pacific anymore. And I think that is why Indonesia went ahead and despite initial scepticism, there may be still existing scepticism amongst some of the other ASEAN countries. You know, ASEAN has accepted Indonesian's proposal to adopt this ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific. Interesting. I mean, last question we asked Ben earlier was that what sort of legacy will Jokowi leave when he finishes his term in 2024? What is your take on that? Well, because of his strong focus on infrastructure development and less care about Indonesia's democracy and reform of institutions, it would be sad if Jokowi is only known as the infrastructure president. But on the other hand, infrastructure is very, very important. But I think his most important legacy is in being Jokowi himself, that somebody from, you might say, in a small town with very humble background can make it big in Indonesia. And this gives hope to the birth of new leaders in Indonesia. So it's not just Jakarta elites, it's not just the military, the bureaucracy of the old families anymore. And I think this is very important when you say that the Jokowi may not be as caring in looking after the democratic institutions, but by being himself of where he came from, he has given hope. And because of that, I think that also the desires by a lot of forces to rewind Indonesia's decentralization, for example, you know, to end the direct elections of regional heads. But Joko himself has, as I suppose that, because if one returns to the indirect elections through parliament or regional legislatures, then the political oligarchies will determine who will become regional heads. And that will, you know, deprive sovereignty from the people. And the whole point of Jokowi, I think, is that that's his most important legacy. You know, he allows the emergence of new leaders, which is truly a democratic. Debbie, that's a great place to finish up. Thank you so much for your time and for those insights. And it's been so important to hear from you. And we really want to thank you for your generosity with those thoughts. That's all from this episode of Asia Matters. We'll have more on our website, which is asiamatterspod.com, where you can sign up to be part of our mailing list. And of course, also to read more about the topics we've been discussing. I want to thank Vincent, of course, today. And also to say that please 
do get in touch with us on our Twitter feed, which is at Asia Matters Pod. And also please get in touch with us by email feedback at asiamatterspod.com. And do leave us a review on iTunes or whatever other service you use to listen to our podcast. Thank you again to Alexander Lestrange for writing the music for Asia Matters. And I hope you enjoyed this edition. We'll have plenty more to come in the future. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>